Lord our God, we thank you today, and we praise you for your word and your power. Your word can change us, because it is quick and powerful and living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask now, Father, that you would literally perform spiritual surgery upon us with your word. We ask you to convict us, but we do ask you to do it gently. We ask you to enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might understand great things from your word. In your son's precious and holy name, amen. <clears throat> well, we come to this one verse in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous verses in all scripture. The golden rule. You know it, right? You're, you're taught. They used to teach it in school. You can find it on greeting cards. You can find it on bumper stickers. You can find it on street signs. It's, it's everywhere. It would be rare to find someone of a certain age who, in America who didn't know basically what the golden rule said. The words of the golden rule. If you were to ask someone... Do you know what the golden rule is? I'm not a gambling man, but I think that the vast majority of people who are adults in America will be able to say, yeah, I think so, and they probably get most of it right. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They might not know exactly where they got that from. They might not know that the Son of God is the one who said it, but he does here in Matthew 7. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's a pretty heady statement in Matthew 7, 12. How are we doing with that one? How are you acting towards people? You see, even though we're justified by faith, by what we believe, or better yet, by on whom we believe, that faith is proven to be true by our actions. You see, faith and good works are two sides of one coin. And it's very important that we get them in the right order, chronologically. It is wrong to think that our good works somehow move us toward faith and then we believe. It is certainly wrong to think that our good works move us towards God, and then he accepts us because of our good works. The proper chronology is, the Spirit quickens your heart, you believe, and then you actively pursue good works. You actively pursue good works. The classic text for this is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians 2.8 for great, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Most Protestants, since it's Protestant Reformation Day, most Protestants know the content of those two verses. But they don't know Ephesians 2.10, the verse that follows right after it. For we are his workmanship, that is God's workmanship, created for good works. Hmm. Are you aware that you're created for good works? 
that if you're a Christian, your Christianity is not supposed to be just banal fire insurance. Certainly being delivered from the clutches of hell is a very wonderful thing. But Christianity is much more than just that. Christianity in the here and now is about living a holy life, trying to live a holy life because that's who we are. You see, we don't try to live a holy life so that God will accept us and then make us more holy. If we are holy in Christ, then that identity should reflect itself in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our words, in our entertainments, in the way we spend our money, in the way we spend our time. One follows the other, chronologically and logically. And it's important for us to define these terms as accurately as possible. What determines if something is a good work? Could you give me an accurate definition of good work? Very simple definition is this. A, it has to conform to God's law. It has to. Because by definition, a sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So if a sin is a violation of God's law, then a good work, by definition, has to be in conformity to God's law. Okay? And a good work has to be done with the right motive. You see, if someone doesn't murder somebody just because they know that they're going to get caught because there's a police officer standing right there, that doesn't really count as a good work in God's eyes because they're not doing the bad thing just because they know that they're going to get caught. Now, to not murder somebody because you're aware that it's a violation of God's law and that it's an abomination in God's eyes, now that is a good work. You see, you have a proper motivation. It's coming from a proper heart. To not do something just because you know you're going to get caught is pretty half-baked. Well, I didn't steal it because, well, mom was right there. Okay, well, it's good that you didn't steal it, but, you know, you shouldn't have stole it because it's just wrong to steal. And see, what did Job say? Convict me of my sins. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's heady, heady stuff. Very, very difficult to do, isn't it? Uh, I find it difficult. What you have to understand is a couple of things here. One, Jesus is reinventing a rabbinic truth. This isn't completely original to Jesus. The rabbis taught this, and you need to pay very careful attention to the words here. The rabbis of Jesus' day taught this. Don't do anything to anyone else that you wouldn't want them to do to you. Okay, did you get that? I'm going to repeat that. The rabbis of Jesus' day taught this, and they still teach it, actually. Do not do anything to anyone that you would not want them to do to you. Did you hear all those negatives? In other words, if you don't want someone to steal from you, then don't steal from them. Okay, that's pretty good. If you don't want someone to... Steal your wife. Don't steal another's wife. That's Okay, that's pretty good. But Jesus has this way of spinning things that make it much more enormous. You have to remember that Pharisees were listening here. And Pharisees, their ears would have perked up 
when he put this spin on the rabbi's statement because this is a lot more difficult. Because Jesus isn't telling us not to do bad things that we don't want to happen to us. He's commanding us to do good things to other people that we would like them in the ideal situation to do for us. It's very, very different. They're similar but very different. Don't steal someone's cloak in the ancient world because they'll get cold. That's good, right? Because you wouldn't want them to steal your coat. But the implication of this golden rule that Jesus is giving us is a much more deeper concept. And the deepest concept is this. If that person doesn't have a cloak, buy one for them. Very big difference. You see, it's somewhat easier to refrain from doing negative, evil behaviors that you don't want to happen to you. It's very, very much more difficult. To actually go out of your way and do something good for someone because you would hope that in, if the situations were reversed, they would do that for you. So to not steal one, someone's cloak is a good thing. To buy them a cloak because they don't have one is better. Why is it better? I'm not asking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. It's better because God says it's better. The essence of covenantal religion when it comes to our relationships with each other is very simple. Love others as you would have them love you. Or as James, the Lord's half-brother, tells us. True religion and undefiled before our God and Father is this. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In other words, look out for those who cannot look out for themselves. Because in the ancient world, a widow and an orphan, they had no safety net whatsoever. The Roman government was not going to care about some Jewish orphan. The Romans didn't really care about their own children very much, particularly if you were a baby girl. If you're a baby boy, you're more valued because, well, you could be a soldier. You could protect things. If you're a baby girl... Romans could do all kinds of crazy things. They could just expose you. That was a popular way of dealing with baby girls or disabled infants in the Roman world. Just take the baby outside of the city gates and just literally leave it on a pile of trash and let the elements take care of it. Not quite abortion, but not very far removed from it. Christians are called not to do those type of things. So the ancient church, what the ancient church started to do, instead of forming political action committees and going to Rome and saying, you know what, that's an evil practice. You should, you should outlaw that, Nero. They just started going out to the dump and grabbing the babies and bringing them into their own homes and feeding them and raising them in the ways of the covenant. Whole different type of covenantal and corporate witness. The Romans started to realize, what on earth are these people doing? They're going out of their way to get our discarded trash. And they're bringing it into their own homes. 
at their own cost and not asking anybody for any help with it. Ooh. Now that's golden rule living. That's doing something good just because it's the right thing to do. But how are we going to define this? When Jesus says it's the law and the prophets, that's Jesus' way of saying, look, I'm summing up the entire Old Covenant. I'm summing up the entire book of demands of the Mosaic Covenant. If you can truly live according to the golden rule, because Christ has purchased you, then the law and the prophets, that's Jesus' way of saying the entire corpus of the Old Testament is being fulfilled in your daily life. Well, that would be nice to be able to, to have God say that about you, don't you think? You know you're going to die. We're all going to die. I know young people are looking very bored right now because you don't actually think that that's going to happen. <laughs> um, and I, I encourage you to hold on to that feeling because you get a lot of wind in your sails from that feeling of youth and immortality. But as you get older, the reality of that last day will come upon you. We all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you want to hear these words? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That should be the focus of your entire life. That every thought, every word, every deed, that if you were to be held accountable for it at that moment and Someday in the future we will be. That you would hear, well done now, good and faithful servant. Because you see, if God says, well done now, good and faithful servant, then it doesn't really matter what anybody else says. Does it? Can you imagine the joy of hearing that? You're in your resurrected body and death can't touch you, disease can't touch you, and the Father says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Can you imagine? No, you can't. You can't imagine that joy. Neither can I. But that's what we should be striving for. And the only way to accomplish that is to really look at this golden rule and to really think if it's really happening in our lives. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So let's just think about this practically for a minute. This isn't hard to figure out what it is, how it actually moves in our life. It gets a little bit more tricky. What would you want someone to do for you if the situations were reversed? Let's just get real practical here, shall we? Let's just say hypothetically, you were an orphan in India. What would you want someone in America to do for you. Not too hard here, right? Food, clothing, and shelter, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? Well, in two or three weeks, those of you who are members of the church are going to be able to vote on the church budget. The session of deacons are proposing that we boost our world missions up to $10,000 from nine. Going to vote to approve that? I hope so. Are you then going to give so that that can be fulfilled? Bear in mind, we're talking about orphans, and you know, there'll be other missionaries as well, but the orphanage in northern India is our prime recipient. Let me ask you this. What's, what's a thousand bucks? 
I mean, if I grabbed, I'm trying to do some math in my head here. If I grabbed 100 people, I'm just going to do a real, real quick division. If I grabbed 100 people that we know, 100 families, do you think that we would be able to honestly say, yeah, in the last calendar year I wasted $100 on something? Unnecessary food or we threw food out? Did you throw any food out this week? Because we cooked it and we just forgot about it? And we're wondering what that awful smell is in the kitchen. You realize, oh, I forgot. You know, that last week's lasagna is buried in the back and I forgot about it. And now you can't eat it because it's rotten. Okay. Nothing that's necessarily a sin. I'll leave that between you and your conscience and God. I think all of us could say, yeah, somewhere along the line, we wasted $100. Actually, I just need, I'm doing the math wrong, aren't I? I just need 10 people to do that. 10 times 100 is 1,000, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. 100 times 100 is a... Well, think about that. If I were to grab 100 people and say, could you come up with $100? It's not really going to hurt. This is money that you just wasted. You forgot to make coffee in the morning, so you had to go to Starbucks and pay 5 bucks for a cup of coffee. Right? Or you, you forgot to eat breakfast, so you had to go to McDonald's and bam, $6 for stuff that looks like eggs. If I could find 100 families that could say, yes, that's true, and I won't do that for one year, then that's 10 grand. And I think most of us would say, could probably up the $100 number most likely. You push it up to 150 over the course of a whole year, you're looking at wasting $3 a week on unnecessary stuff. If you find 100 families that do that, then you have $15,000. Now bear in mind, this is not going out of our way to give. This is just maybe not buying a cup of coffee once a week. It's not going to hurt you. You're not even going to feel it. This is a matter of just making sure that the leftovers get cooked. Really. That's all it really takes. If you were an orphan in northern India, would you want that to happen? Well, then let us do so. What if you weren't saved? What if you knew nothing about Christ? Nothing. Would you want someone to tell you about him? Or would you want them to perish? When is the last time, this isn't a guilt trip, this is just conviction, when was the last time you actually told somebody about Christ? About the joy that's in your heart. That's all you have to do. You don't have to talk to them about their life. All you have to do is talk about your life if your life's okay. Are you enjoying Christ? Are you joyous that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Are you happy that God has saved you? Why not tell somebody? If you weren't a Christian, 
And some of us came to Christ as adults. Do you remember that person who told you about Christ and blew the top of your mind off? And you realized, wow, that's an earth-shattering message. Spread the good news. The gospel is called the good news. Are you sharing it? Are you sharing the hope of Christ that is in you? Are you excited about God? Are you excited about your Creator who has recreated you in His Son? If not, then we really need to get our values checked. Is there something that you're more excited about than God and His ways? If so, that's called an idol. Do you want me as your pastor to tell you about these things? Honestly. Or do you want me to just spoon feed you syrup and sugar? And just tell you everything's okay? What do you really want? Do you want the doctor to tell you you're sick? Or do you want him to say it's going to be okay and then you die in two weeks? What do you want from the doctor? What do you want from the mechanic? The brake lines are gone. We need to fix them now. Or just, hey, have a great day. Hop in there and just drive. What would you want the mechanic to say? I think you'd want, if, if he didn't tell you, you know what you would do, don't you? You'd be on the phone with a lawyer. He didn't tell me about those brake lines. That doctor didn't tell me I was going to die. Uh, your, your relatives would then be talking to the lawyer. You wouldn't be. You'd have bigger fish to fry at that point. Think about it. What about each other? Are you sharing in each other's struggles? Are you sharing in each other's joys? Is that what we're doing as a church? I would hope so. Is that what we're moving towards? Is that what we want as a church? I would hope so. I would hope so. If you were down, if you were discouraged, if you were despondent, all these D words, if you were depressed, deflated, would you want someone to listen to you for five, ten minutes? Are you willing to do that for someone else? More importantly, are you willing to go out of your way when you realize that they are in that state of affair and to offer your ear to them? Are you willing not to wait for them to come to you because they might not, because their pride might not let them? Are you willing to go to them and say, you know what, just wanted to let you know in case things aren't going quite perfectly rosy for you at the moment. You can give me a buzz. But that happens, right? People say, oh, you can give me a buzz anytime you want. I have a relative in New Jersey who says, listen, whenever you come, whenever you come home, you can stay with us. Now, I never take, the, never take them up on his offer. Um, because I know it's like a half-baked offer. It's an offer that's made that you hope no one ever calls you on. <laughs> If you ever need anything, just let me know. And then someone calls you up. Hey, you know what? By the way, I do need something. It's an offer that's given, but um, kind of with right motives, but you're hoping that nobody actually says, I, I actually would like that thing. I thought about that when, when my father was still living. My father and I, during one of the periods when we were talking, and I had told him, and you can visit me anytime you want. As an adult, I told him this realizing he's not going to ever call me to visit me because he wasn't there when I was a kid. He's probably not going to want to come halfway across the country and visit me. So one day in St. Louis, we come home from church, and I'm an intern. Ruthann says, um, there's a message from your dad on the phone. He wants to come visit. And I said, that's not a really funny thing to joke around about. 
She goes, no, I'm not. It's on the message machine. I thought, all right, I told him that a long time ago, and he wants to come out. Surprise, surprise, surprise. You told me I could come out any time. I'd like to come out. Okay. We had a nice visit, but it was certainly unexpected. Don't be that type of person that offers things hoping that people won't ever ask you for them. Because that's like an oath. If you tell somebody, you know what, I'll do this for you if you ever need it, and then they ask and you don't do it, that's an oath. That's an oath. That's ninth commandment stuff. Don't be a false testimony. Herod chopped off John the Baptist's head because of that ninth commandment. He gave his word. He took an oath. It was a stupid oath. It was an evil oath, but it was still an oath. Now, there's ways he could have got around it. Okay? There's ways. He should have paused and got the Pharisees. And they would have shown him how other things supersede a stupid oath. Now, that sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder it trumps the oath one. But what are you like? What am I like? Are we living like this? More importantly, do we want to live like this? Do we want to be known as people with open hearts and, quite frankly, open pocketbooks? One of my fellow colleagues in the Presbytery said one time during the heated debate, in Presbytery. He was actually here in this church. He was right there. I'd like to see him. Now he was using a good argument in a wrong case, but that's not the point. He said, you know what, if you show me your checkbook, I'll show you where your heart is. Well, a lot of that's true. You go in your checkbook and you realize, oh, I'm buying all this a lot of stuff for myself and nothing nothing's going to anybody else. That's probably not a very good sign. If they're all self-indulgent purchases and there's nothing going to somebody that has nothing, it's not a good sign. It's not. Do we really want to be those type of persons? Do we want to be that type of church? Or do we want to be known as persons and families and churches who actually do look after those who are sick and hurting and lonely? That's what the Lord wants from us. And it's a great privilege to do that. And our society is quickly unraveling. There are many lonely people out there. There are many hurting people out there. There are many children from divorced homes who may not be technically orphans, but they're pretty much orphans. You know, it's hard to learn how to be a man if dad's not in the house. It's pretty impossible, actually. Are we willing to show them the love of Christ? He's loved you. He's loved me. He showered this church with blessings for hundreds of years. Will we not turn around and share those blessings with others? If we were in their shoes, would we want them to do that for us? I think we would say yes. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do that and you will fulfill the ways of the covenant.
Let's pray. Lord, we would like to be this type of person. But we know that it won't be easy. So we ask that you would make us willing to pay the cost to be such persons. Amen.